0: Good morning Ascent Church, Happy New Year. It's 2021, I can't. I love it that we get to say that now. So love it that you guys are joining us today in the church service. How fun was Christmas Eve, you guys. For you guys to join us online, hopefully you had a great experience. I loved it being out there in that parking lot with you guys, just wandering around the cars, getting to say hi to you through the windshields. It was so good for my soul to just see you guys. Well look, I'm gonna let you in on something a little bit later in the service. I wanna tell you about another way that we're gonna get a chance to gather together, Uh, but I'm gonna save that for you for a little bit. Here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna worship the Lord together. Chris is gonna bring the message to us today. I wanna pray for us, and then let's spend some time worshiping God. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the chance to be together. We are celebrating, celebrating the fact that in 2021, we have hope, and that hope is not because of a new year. It's a hope because of, of you. God, we want to pray that this day, that this service would speak to each one of us as we draw closer to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys, let's worship the Lord together.
1: Who am I that the highest I was lost, but he brought me. You know, his love for me is his love
2: for me. Who messes.
3: Purpose for your life, you have gifts, you have abilities. God wants to use them, God wants to speak to you this year. We believe it. And somebody needs a reminder today that they are a daughter or a son of the Most High God. It doesn't get better than that, you guys. So let's remind ourselves and one another who we are. Come on, I am
1: chosen, not forsaken. Yes, I am chosen, I am chosen, not forsaken. Oh I
0: All right, folks, well, before Chris gets started with this sermon, a couple of things for you guys. One, we're going to try to get together in person. It's not gonna be like some other churches are doing where they're jamming people in. We're gonna we're, we're do it careful, as carefully as we can. Here's what we're gonna do. On January seventeenth, we're going to do two services: one at nine, one at ten thirty. We're still going to do an online version, but we're going to do one—we're going to do two of those services in person. You can register online for them. It's just going to be a hundred people per service. Still going to be the masks on. Still going to be six feet of distance. We're not going to be able to do the donuts and the coffee. We're not going to be able to do the pizza afterwards. Those things we're going to have to hold off on but at least we're gonna get a couple of chances for people to gather together in person on a Sunday morning, okay? So look online, we're gonna have all that stuff there for you to register, we're gonna put it all up this week and we'll be able to at least get started. Just an experiment, we'll change on a dime, we'll turn to a different way if we need to, but right now we'll try that starting January 17th. The second thing I wanna share with you guys is I just want to thank you. You guys were so stinking generous in December. We went into December with a lot of concern. Concern around the Christmas shop, concern around general giving. We we didn't know if that money would come in, but you guys were so generous this last month, and I can't thank you enough for it. The Christmas shop. You guys, we're standing here now, the shelves are empty. It's always a little bittersweet when it's all said and done because this is such a fun thing, the Christmas shop. The shelves are empty because every single toy was put in the hands of kids this Christmas. And you guys need to know that every dollar that was spent on the Christmas shop was given from you guys that directly put it in saying, I am giving to the Christmas shop this year. And you guys know the numbers, over 2,000 kids, over 600 families, over 7,000 toys, all of it. It's, the shelves are empty and kids Christmases were blessed because you guys were generous. And I wanna thank you for that. Also thank you for all of you that gave to our general budget. You guys, many of you gave end of your gifts. We were concerned about that as well. And you guys gave, and I'm thankful for that. We are still in a financial challenge over the next few months. We know that that's gonna be a challenge, but I'm gonna remember this month. I'm gonna remember what you guys did and the amount of, of, of giving that you gave, that what you did, your generosity, and how that blessed our church and that God continues to say, I will provide. Thank you so much for, for, for you and what you were doing, how the Lord was, was working on your hearts and how that was reflected in the giving in this church. I can't thank you enough for it. Okay, well, here we go. Let's get into what Chris is gonna share with us today. He's got a great message for us. Settle in, let's listen to Chris.
4: Well, Happy New Year. This is our very first service of 2021. And what a great feeling to have 2020 mercifully come to an end after what seemed like seven to eight years of it being around. I know that I am so glad that all of our problems are gone now and it is officially the good old days again. These are truly sweet times. Uh, I actually love January. Um, I love the idea of resolutions and goals and putting together a plan for the year and, and getting this vision of what I want it to all look like. Um, and this is actually something that I did in December. I, I got a big whiteboard out, I put it on the ground and I scribbled notes all over my kind of various notepads and journals. And I read articles about how to set the best kind of goals for the year um, and I went through this process and I, and I dreamed big about what did I wanna do In this year, professionally and personally and with my family and even like physically, like, you know, everybody, this is the year when everybody decides they're going to be both a professional bodybuilder and a professional marathoner. Um, And it can happen because it's January and this is when we do things like that. It really is the most aspirational time of the year. And when I went through my process of, of dreaming about the year to come, and thinking through what are the things that I wanna accomplish. I actually ended up breaking it down to that I had some annual goals. Like this is what I wanna see happen in 2021. And then I subdivided it into three month categories. So now I have quarterly goals on like, what do I wanna see happen in these first three months? And then in the units of time that come after that. And then in order to make sure that I actually get there, I set some, some actions, things that I wanna do every day, that i want to do every week and things that i want to do every month that i can hold myself accountable to in order to make sure that i get to some of these fairly lofty goals that i've set for myself in this year maybe some of you are like me and that's something that you love to do and you did it too or maybe made a dream board i know that's a thing i saw some pictures of it on pinterest i didn't do that myself Um, but more power to you if that's you right we we dream big we make plans i did that But as I was doing it, when I reviewed it and looked back at like, hey, these are the things that I want to try to do uh, throughout the year in order to get where I wanna go, I noticed something that was conspicuously missing from the list. And so this is the question I want us to interact with today. And it's this, where does prayer fit in our process of getting where we wanna go in life? What role does our faith have to play in that? So here's the thing, the Bible says a ton about asking God for things in prayer. I picked uh, just three verses, but literally there are hundreds of them that I could be reading. So look at this, John chapter 14, verse 13. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the father may be glorified in the son. That's Jesus saying, I'll do whatever you ask. It's kind of a big, big promise. Matthew chapter seven, this is uh, Jesus again, verses seven and eight. Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who searches, finds. And everyone who knocks, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. One more, 1 John three twenty-two. And we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, listen, that is three just small examples. Literally, I had a super long list that I looked through and just kind of picked those ones at random. The Bible is full of these kinds of sayings that assume that we're gonna come to God asking for what we want and need in this life and that God will respond. You know, A few months ago, I showed up to staff meeting at Ascent, and uh, Bill had put together this big document. It had like over a hundred promises from the Bible, things that in, in the Bible, these are, these are words that we can read that offer some kind of promise, and they covered a ton of different topics. And he, he handed it to each one of us on staff and sent us to go find a quiet place and to spend 30 minutes to read through them, reflect on them, and see if there was one that kind of particularly I needed to hear. And so, and he said, and then we'll all come back and we'll share which one stood out to us. And so we come back and the one that had really stood out to me is from a book in the Bible called Philippians, chapter four, verse six, and this is what it says. It says, do not be anxious about anything. It's kind of a big, big ask. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I came back and I shared that one because I know that in general, when I run into a problem, my strategy is to throw as much anxiety at it as possible until I fix it and totally forgive that whole like, peace that transcends understanding thing. And so I shared like, gosh, I need that promise. That, uh, that I don't have to be anxious and worry about everything in this world, that, that, that God will come near to me in that. Now, Bill is pretty sneaky uh, because what we all found out after we had picked our verses and come back is he said, now this week, you all have to memorize your verse, and then next week you're gonna come back and we're all gonna recite our verses in this meeting. I felt really bad for the people who had chosen much longer Bible promises. Uh, fortunately, mine was uh, a bit shorter. But what that meant is that I spent the next week reading that verse every day. I spent the next week thinking about what it had to say, and I realized something in that week. I realized, you know, it says present, or um, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, so asking, present your requests to God. and, And what I realized is that I don't ever ask God for anything. And I reflected and thought, and and I realized that I used to. And so I had to start diving in and be like, when did that stop and why did I stop doing that? And the more I thought about it, the best answer I could come up with is that I stopped ever asking God for anything because it felt risky. It's scary to get your hopes up. And I realized that it only has to happen once in your life that you pray, really 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 hard for really 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 long for something that is in and of itself inherently really 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 good and not get it to make coming to god and asking for anything get really hard so for me this goes all the way back to being 24 years old and praying so hard for my dad to recover, for my dad to live, and he didn't. And a couple years later, praying really hard with everything that I had in me for my wife's kidney to not fail, and it did. And something changed in me. Somewhat imperceptibly, I didn't even notice. Like, I continued to pray Some, sometimes. I continued to read my Bible. I continued to go to church. But I, th- the way I prayed, the way I interacted with God had changed because suddenly it felt a lot more frightening to really ask for what I hoped for and needed in this life. And so I wanna spend the rest of the time that we have today talking about that. What are the things in life that may lead us to or away from actually requesting from God what we hope for and need in this life? And how does that work? How does praying work? And we're gonna do it by taking a look at two passages of Jesus's teaching um, that I think, at least by me, can be the most easily misunderstood. And before we dive in, let me say this prayer for us. God, I ask you today to be with us in this moment, that as we look at the words of Jesus preserved for us in the Bible, God, that you would be actively involved with each one of us, that this would be a moment where we are drawn closer to you, where we hear from you and where you are doing the work inside of us and in our hearts that we need to have done. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray, amen. Okay. So let me start off by I'm gonna read two passages out of the Bible to you. Um, and, let, and I'll just intro them by saying this, these are maybe the two passages of the Bible that I like the least. I, I don't like this. And you might think, well, that's weird. Aren't you supposed to like everything in the Bible? Uh, no, I, I never found the verse that said I have to do that. These are things that I have struggled with. And so let's take a look. The first one is in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 14 through 21. And this is what it says. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, him is Jesus, knelt before him and said, "'Lord, have mercy on my son, "'for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. "'He often falls into the fire and often into the water, "'and I brought him to your disciples, "'but they could not cure him.'" Jesus answered, "'You faithless and perverse generation.'" How how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? It's a little, little harsh. Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Okay, so that's the first one. Second one uh, is just a couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 21, and it's going to sound, part of it is going to sound pretty familiar. So this is Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. In the morning, when he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing at all on it but leaves. Then he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt Not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. So why don't I like these two passages? Well, it's because I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and what I asked for didn't happen. The mountain didn't move for me. And when that happened, all I could hear in my head was the very last part of that last verse where it says, whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. And that sounds a lot like an equation to me. And the equation would look like this. Prayer plus faith equals receiving. Prayer plus faith equals receiving receiving something. But here's the problem with that formula, because in that formula, if you prayed and did not receive, there's only one other variable on this side of the equation and it's my faith. And the way that I internalized that meant that I prayed and I prayed for people who I loved and what I needed to have happen didn't happen. And it was because of my lack of faith. It was my fault. And all of a sudden it got a lot scarier to ask God for anything because that kind of crushed hope in me led to shame and guilt. And those are no place that I ever wanted to be again. Can you relate to that? Have you had that feeling? Well, here's the good news. I don't think it has to be that way because I don't think that's what's actually happening in those passages. And so one at a time, let's take a closer look at what is actually happening there. And so we'll go back to the first one. This is Matthew uh, chapter 17. This is the story about the, the young boy who, with epilepsy who is cured by Jesus, right? Now, anytime you're reading the Bible, and especially if you come upon something that is troubling to you, it's really important to always understand the context, right? Know what what happened just before that passage and what is gonna happen right after it. Because the way that the Bible is written, stories are meant to help interpret each other. And so with that story, here's what's been happening. Jesus has been traveling all over and he has been performing tons of miracles, huge miraculous signs. He's, he's healing people. He's helping the blind to see. He's feeding people. You know, he'll feed 4,000 people with like half a loaf of bread and two fish sticks, uh, just like a chapter before, right? So that's what he's been doing. As he does it, he's getting these huge crowds who are following him everywhere that he goes. Why? Because they want more fish sticks, right? So that's what's been happening. So then he steps away from the crowd, he takes just his disciples to kind of a quiet place up on a mountain and then he chooses three of them and he goes to the top of the mountain with just three. And this thing, like if you're reading in your Bible, they have the little uh, subtitles above paragraphs. It will say the transfiguration, which is a needlessly large word. Um, But here's what happens. It goes up there and kind of the clouds part and a voice from heaven speaks. And next to Jesus, these two like Old Testament figures from like the the, the first part of the Bible um, show up. And Jesus like glows, it actually says that. And these disciples are there and they hear God's voice say from heaven say, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased, listen to him, right? So these disciples, they have actually heard the voice of God say, you've been following Jesus. I just wanna confirm for you, he is who he says he is. This is my son, listen to him. And so they're coming down the mountain and that's where our passage starts. It says like, he returned to the crowd, right? He's come down the mountain, they're still there. And this boy is brought to him needing to be prayed for. And then Jesus gives us this challenging thing about faith the size of a mustard seed, being able to move a mountain from here to there. And then don't miss this because here's what happens next. Jesus goes immediately from that and he predicts his own death. He says immediately from that moment, I'm gonna be betrayed, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be killed, and on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. And then it just says that the disciples are very distressed, right? So here's why all that is important. Remember, Jesus has been doing miraculous signs. He's feeding, he's healing, he's doing all this stuff, and these crowds are around him, but they're not around him because they want to hear what he has to say, they're there because they want to eat what he has to give. They're there because they want to receive what they want from him. But healing and feeding is not the only thing Jesus has been doing. He has also been teaching. And the crowds are a lot less interested in what he has to say. They're a lot less interested in living the kind of life that he is describing to them. And so when Jesus comes down and he says, you faithless and perverse generation, right? And it feels super harsh this is the frustration. Remember, on the mountaintop, what did God say? This is my son. Listen to him. You've seen the signs. Now listen and live into what he has to say. Um, One of the things that's really great about ancient Greek is that the pronouns always um, are either singular or plural. So actually, no, he says, he doesn't say you. He's not talking to the father of this boy. He's talking to the crowd, saying, you all, you've got to get it. And then he says this thing, you know, that the disciples will say to him, hey, why couldn't we cast it out? Because they had been doing that, right? They had been, he had sent them out to travel. They had been healing people. They had been casting out demons, like, and this one suddenly they couldn't. He said, because of your little faith. But then oddly he says, what it takes is little faith, right? You of little faith, if you had faith, even the size of a mustard seed, you would be able to do anything. Nothing would be impossible for you. What Jesus is saying is not that it only takes a little bit and you have even less than that, right? This is not like this hidden barb that he's trying to give to the disciples. What he's getting at is that they have the wrong kind of faith. See, the disciples are still thinking the way that the crowds are. And Jesus really, I feel like he clarifies this. It's interpreted by the next thing he says. This is what he says Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23 as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man, which is a phrase that Jesus used to refer to himself, is going to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised. And they were greatly distressed, right? This is the disciples. He's gone from, hey, mountains can move to I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die. And they don't get it. They're distressed because In the same way that the crowd wants more signs and the exercising of more power, so do the disciples. And they want to be actually the ones who get to do it. See, they're looking for Jesus to triumph in the way that the world expected him to do. And I have to imagine that they were more convinced of that than ever because of that, you know, this transfiguration thing, right? God has actually said, no, he really is the one. They're expecting something big and grand and powerful. They're expecting flash, right? And instead Jesus gives them a cross instead of performing this amazing thing and overthrowing Rome and returning their kingdom to power, Jesus predicts death and defeat. Now it's defeat that ultimately leads to resurrection, but they just don't get it and they're distressed. See, the kind of faith that is encapsulated in a mustard seed isn't big and grand and flashy. It's small and it's humble And it actually has to die and be buried before it can grow into something new. At the time, uh, the phrase like moving mountains, like move this mountain from here to here, that was a common phrase that people would say to refer to things that are impossible. We actually still use that phrase quite a bit around here. Um, And so because that is a common phrase, we have no reason to assume that the original hearers heard this and were like, I'm actually gonna be able to move a mountain, right? That would not be how they had heard it. And especially since we have pretty decent geological records and and no history through the 2000 years of the church of anybody actually moving a mountain, uh, perhaps we don't have to assume that either. Um, I think if it was true, all of us, uh, our our property values would go up because we'd all have really spectacular mountain views. Um, See what Jesus is doing, what he's talking about is, his agenda is so much bigger. He has come to enact a new kind of world, a new kind of kingdom, and he's not concerned with these temporary signs and the exercising of temporary power. He has come to renew all things, to heal all people, to make all of creation brand new. But the disciples can't get it yet because at this point, they haven't grasped that faithfulness does not equal painlessness. Painlessness faithfulness does not equal painlessness. And that victory in God's kingdom often looks like defeat in ours. All right. Second passage, Matthew 21, four chapters later, here's the context. This is the one where Jesus curses the fig tree um, and then gives a similar teaching about if you have faith and don't doubt, then you could tell this mountain to jump into the sea. Here's what's happened. Again, uh, as you're reading the Bible and they have these subtitles, it's gonna say triumphal entry. Again, a totally unnecessary, grandiose way to say something, but this is what happened. Jesus, in the week before he's actually ultimately gonna die, enters Jerusalem for this huge festival that was really important to the people of Israel called Passover. But when he comes in, something crazy happens, right? People start taking their cloaks off and throwing it down on the road and they break off palm fronds from trees and they wave them and put them down. Both of which were signs from the Old Testament of what happened when the king returned to the city. They The, the crowds are declaring, this is our new king, right? This is a revolutionary sort of moment. But even then, G- Jesus is kind of turning it On its head, because instead of riding into town on a big grand war horse, he's on the colt of a donkey, like the most humble small little animal ever, which is a great hint early on that maybe this isn't going to turn out exactly like you're expecting. So he comes in, he goes directly to the temple. This is the center of all of Israel's life, right? And he has this this, uh, episode that's usually called the cleansing of the temple. He gets mad. They've got these guys who are money changers and he flips their tables over and they're selling like livestock that would be sacrificed in there. And he drives them out. And it's this big moment where he's kind of this frontal attack on what is happening in the temple. Uh, And then he leaves Jerusalem and sees this fig tree and he curses it. It withers. And then he gives the disciples this teaching about prayer. Here's what we have to understand. The fig tree in ancient Israel was a very common figurative image of the country of Israel and the temple in particular. So the people who are listening to Jesus, who are the first readers of Matthew's gospel, the disciples who he was speaking to are going to immediately draw a parallel between the fig tree and the temple especially given the fact that he has just done this dramatic thing in the temple. Um, there's another book in the Bible, Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark, that also tells a story. In Mark, Jesus curses the fig tree, then goes into town and and cleanses the temple, then comes out and the disciples see it withered. And he gives the same uh, the same kind of teaching on prayer. He's actually uh, Mark has surrounded the story of the temple with this, another really strong clue that what's happening with that tree is helping us understand what just happened in the temple. So that is um, really important for us to grasp. But here's something that Jesus says, I don't want us to miss, right? He's there and he says, you can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. What mountain, right? Well, a basic understanding of the geography of where he's at is important here. And so I've got this little map for you that you can take a look at, right? So Jesus was at the temple. He's gonna leave Jerusalem. He's actually gonna come down. And then he's gonna come back up into a town called Bethany, which is by a place called the Mount of Olives, right? So he's come back up. So right behind him is what's been called the Temple Mount. It is this mountain. Um, It's not exactly like the Rocky Mountains, but um, there's this mountain where the temple is. So he says, this mountain can be thrown into the sea. What's he saying? Well, one of the things that was so crucial to what Jesus came to teach and do is that, and, and, and in fact, a, a couple chapters later, he's going to predict correctly the destruction of the temple. The whole temple would actually be destroyed by Rome about 40 years later in 70 CE. Um, he's saying that mountain can be thrown into the sea because what Jesus came to do was to remove the temple as this this intermediary between humanity and God. See, back then people went to the temple and that's where uh, somebody else would perform an act of sacrifice. And that would be like atonement for their sins. It would draw them close to God. They had to go to the temple. And Jesus saying, that's going away because through me, every person everywhere can gain immediate access to God by putting faith, trust, and coming to me in prayer. So when Jesus is saying, if you have faith, uh, if you pray and with faith, that can happen, right? He's saying, I am now the way for you to come to God. But check this out. This is like the most fascinating thing. I, I read this in a book as I haven't actually been to this place. So as you come up on the Mount of Olives, you've got the temple behind you, but the entire Southern horizon is dominated by a big mountain that looks like a volcano. And it's in a place called Herodian, which you can see on this map down here. Now, what, what, what is there is something called the fortress of Herodian. So this whole region of the ancient world had been ruled by this guy named Herod the Great. He makes several appearances in the Bible, not a great dude, but he has that name because uh, he built a lot of really great big things. One of the things that he built was this fortress, but here's what's interesting about it. From where Jesus and the disciples are standing They can see it incredibly clearly. It's this huge imposing thing. But there actually used to be another big hill, another mountain out there that Herod had literally moved. In this incredible uh, exercise of human power, Herod completely removed this adjacent hill and they built what's called an earthwork around the fortress. It's part of the defensive structure. Um, So they are standing in a place, Jesus is teaching in a place where people can actually look where a mountain had been moved. And he says to them, hey, if you pray and have faith, you won't just be able to say, hey, mountain move from here to here. You can say be thrown into the entire sea and it'll happen. See, Jesus is once again, he's turning the expectation about worldly power on its head. They're in a place where they can look at the most powerful exercise of power like that they can imagine And he's saying, you can do greater things through prayer with faith, but he's not necessarily saying you're going to do the same things. He's not saying, see how big Herod's mountain was? See that bigger one? You can move that one. No, he's saying, you got to start to look at this on a whole different level because what greatness is, is different than what you think. So, what does all of this mean for us right now in 2021? What does this have to do with how do, how do we approach God in prayer? Because, you know, we have, I have this tendency, I'll bet you do too, that we want to be able to go to people who are struggling, who are dealing with pain and suffering and assure them that, hey, it's, it's going to be okay. It's going to work out. but sometimes it won't, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray, but he dies. We hope and we hope and we hope, but it gets worse. We plead with God, but we fail. We live in a world with dementia and ALS and cancer, with job loss and eviction and hunger a world full of abuse and pain. And what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to understand ourselves in a world where things don't always turn out for the best? And then we have this Bible, right? Where it remains that all over these pages, it's telling us, pray to God, ask for what you need and you'll get it. What do we do we do with that? Well, I think we do have to remember that Sometimes it does happen, right? In the story of the epileptic boy, he is healed. This father's desperate plea for his son's health is granted, is miraculously given to him, right? That happens in the Bible. It will talk about what they call the first fruits, right? So if you imagine like, I guess a fig tree, since we've been talking about that, some fig is the first one, right? And it's gonna come way before the whole tree is filled. And Jesus has said, I am coming to bring you a different kind of world where pain no longer exists. And so we have these miraculous moments and they serve as a signpost and a promise of what is to come. Jesus, um, later on, the the last book in the Bible is the revelation of John. And in chapter 21, which is towards the end, verse four, it says this, it's about Jesus coming back. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. See, the kingdom that Jesus has come to offer us passage into, that begins now in bits and fits and starts, ultimately is a place where every tear is wiped away, where all pain has ceased and where death no more rules over us. And so we ask and we pray and we request from a God who does have power in this world. And sometimes we get it, but something else happens too. Because when we're able to come to God in vulnerability and honesty, we find freedom and intimacy with God. But for now, at least, sometimes we pray and it doesn't happen. We don't get it. But the mustard seed faith that Jesus truly modeled himself acknowledges that the big, important, powerful, flashy thing may not happen, but that in what looks small and insignificant and disappointing, we can find resurrection and new life. That even if I don't get what I want, what I hope for, what I need, I can still believe that God is with me and that God is working for me. So let me close with this last story. One of those times years ago, when I was praying so so hard for healing, I was uh, I was still in grad school at the time, and I was I was praying for complications around my wife's kidney, and I was praying. I was like, God, like don't just just make like the transplant last, but like grow back her native kidneys, give her back full health, and like and i and I am. I'm trying to muster up in myself all the faith, whatever that is, I can get to believe hard. And it just, it it doesn't happen, right? And I begin to argue and fight with God. And eventually I say this, I say this to God in prayer. I say, you know what, God, you call yourself a father. You call yourself a father, but you have the power to do anything. And in this moment, you are doing nothing. But Lindsay's real dad, see, he, he gave her her first transplant, the first kidney. He gave his kidney to her, because that's what fathers do. You're a bad father, God. And in that moment, I I heard something, whether it was just in my head, whether it was booming around me, I don't know. But they were words that I heard spoken every Sunday growing up. Because at the church that I went to, we did communion with the grape juice and the bread. We did it every week. And you'd come forward and you'd kneel, and the minister would come around, you'd get this gross little like biscuit thing. Uh, But every week the minister would say, take, this is my body broken for you. And in that moment when I said, God, like you could fix this and you won't, you're a bad father, that's what I heard, take. This is my body broken for you. And I realized that while in life, I was dealing with a broken body in the person I loved most, that Jesus's body was broken too. And that through that breaking, she had been offered healing in life. I had been offered healing in life. We all have been offered healing in life, that Jesus had come, had lived, had died, and had done so on our behalf in order that we could experience that same kind of healing and hope that we most need. And see, in the moment I was praying, I didn't know that I needed to hear that. That that was the message that I needed to hear. And I only found it out because I was willing to ask. And so in 2021, this year, it is my intention to learn to ask again. And I hope that you will too.
3: from our great God, and God wears so many different hats, hats that, there's hats I believe that we don't even know about that God wears, but God says I'm a great father, God says I'm a provider, God says that I'm a redeemer, I'm a restorer, that I'm a great wall that will protect you, that I have wings like an eagle that you can soar upon, and that I have arms like a mother to wrap you in. That is who our great God is. So just take a moment, wherever you are, what do you need of our great God? As we start this year together, what do you need
1: of our great God? Cause that is who you
2: are.
0: All right, you guys, man, I can't. I just love it. I love what Jesus does, where he gets to pick some mustard seeds and say it's faith as small as this. He's just looking around at his surroundings. He says that mountain, just like Chris said, that mountain that was moved, that Herod moved, you saw the power in that. Man, what I'm offering you is so much more powerful than that. And you're gonna be able to tap into that through prayer. Chris, thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the charge for us. What a great charge for 2021. Let's make it a year of prayer. That is exactly what God wants from us this season, okay? All right, you guys, next week, we've got a, a, the beginning of a five-week series, and we're going to want to set the table for what our church wants to do while COVID is still here, while COVID is still lingering, while COVID is still happening. We're gonna, we are going we want to set the stage for what we're going to do as a church in the midst of all that. Come next week or listen next week so we can l- learn more about what we're going to do as a church, what God's charging us to do uh, for this coming year and the coming months ahead. Okay, have a great Sunday. We'll see you you guys next week